The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everybody. I don't know if you've heard, but we have a book coming out. Finally, finally, after all these years. It's great. It's fun. You're going to love it. It's called Stuff You Should Know, colon, an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things. Yep. And it's 26 jam-packed chapters that we wrote with another guy named Nils Parker, who's amazing and is illustrated amazingly by our illustrator, Carly Minardo. And it's just an all-around joy to pick up and read. Even though we haven't physically held in our hands yet, it's like we have, Chuck, in our dreams so far. I can't wait to actually see and hold this thing and smell it. And so should you. So pre-order now. It means a lot to us. Uh, the support is a very big deal. So pre-order anywhere books are sold. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and there's Jerry there, figuring out all the new contrivances of modern <laughs> life. Yeah, I mean, we should tell people what's going on, I think. It's interesting, right? No. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell them. Fine. So Jerry has figured out now how to operate the studio Macintosh recording system <laughs> sure. and not be in the office. It's pretty great. It's it's COVID rific actually. And so she was just up on our Skype on video and she's still there, but when she switched it to mute, it went to that distressing picture. Do you see that thing? No, I just see JR. Like the letter J and the letter R. Oh, see oh there she is. She's back. Okay. When yeah. she turned it off there was I get a, a, a photograph of Jerry that looks like she's like sick in bed or something. It's weird. <laughs> this is a well. That's just Jerry's look. Maybe so. I don't know. That's that's a diet of nothing but miso for fifteen, twenty years will do for you. The weirdest thing um, is this is as close as we've come to normal in four months. I know. Not only is it like normal, it's almost like a throwback. Remember when we had the studio where we would look out the window when she was there? Yeah. Yeah, that was great. This is kind of like this again. She was a window creeper. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Professionally and in her personal life, too. That's right. So this is stuff you should know, everybody. I don't know if I said it. There are probably a few people who are confused and aren't anymore. Um, but we haven't gotten started yet, so prepare to be confused again when we explain something. In particular, Chuck, miniature golf. I got to ask, are you a fan? Uh, this made me want to play again. Like, I grew up playing putt-putt. Sure. Um, and have very fond memories of all the different colored golf balls yeah. and, you know, all like the water trap that was really just a stagnant little puddle yeah. of concrete, you know. Uh -huh. But Papa was wonderful and great, and there were arcades and birthday parties there that featured heavily with G.I. Joe action figures and stuff like that, the good kind, the three and three-quarter inch ones. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, I, I, I am a fan, if not just nostalgically, um, in general, yes. <laughs> and which style, and as you, <clears throat> as a listener will see soon, there are mm -hmm. a couple of different things, but did you grow up playing just sort of the bare bones putt-putt or the more miniature golf, clown's mouth, windmill, volcano? Well, Chuck, if you ask me if I had a rich childhood, I will always tell you, yes, sir. Yes, I did. <laughs> and the reason why is because I grew up having putt-putt close by in Toledo, and we played that a lot. And then when my family would vacation in the summers on Catawba Island on mm -hmm. Lake Erie, 
and this was like pre-cleaned up Lake Erie, there was a like a rundown little like mini golf with like mm. clowns mouths and windmills and all that stuff right by the place where we used to stay, like walking distance. And so we'd play there a lot too. So I had the best of both worlds, a really great just top-notch childhood. So I grew up playing putt-putt at Stone Mountain Park, which we went to a lot uh, because it was near our church and the youth group would go and do putt-putt nights and stuff. Mm -hmm. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, And I was sort of partial to those that were like, you know, the the real putt-putt where it requires a little bit of skill. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I am also a sucker for the beach town, uh, volcano, waterfall, uh, go-kart, bumper boat, arcade scene. (laughs) Yep. Don't forget laser tag. I never really did laser tag. I think that came around a little after I was, you know, in my prime years for this kind of thing. Gotcha. Yeah, it wasn't it, same here, but I, I was looking up now. They have laser tag at putt putt places. But I still love those go karts, man. We, when we go to Isle of Palms last year, <clears throat> I found a place nearby. And I was like, we got to go. And everyone was kind of like, oh, I don't know. And the kids are sort of like, yeah, I guess I'll do it. And I was like, guys, we got to go. <laughs> right. Like, what is wrong with all of you? Who are was, you vacationing with, Chuck? Oh, man, it was so is much fun. Is there a fun. carbon monoxide leak <laughs> at the house you rent? No, those go karts. I could do that all day long. Yeah, for sure. And, of course, I got the guy, you know, the teenager, <clears throat> squeaky-voiced teenager, <laughs> and I said, hey, man, which, which one? <laughs> which which is the, the fast one? And he was right. like, number eight. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah, and sure enough, it was really fast. You just ran circles around everybody? I did, such that I even laid off on the gas a little bit just to catch up and let people, you know, act like they did <laughs> outrace me. What a, what a sportsman. <laughs> oh, yeah. my goodness. Well, we'll talk about go-karts one day more in depth, but today we're just going to focus on the miniature golf, okay? Yeah, this is a pretty interesting history, I think. Yeah, I had no idea how far back it went until we started researching this. And actually, it goes all the way back to the 19th century. And this is one of those rare things that's been around a while, but you can actually pinpoint like the first one. And the first miniature golf course in the world as far as anybody knows, is at St. Andrews. It's the Ladies Putting Club of St. Andrews. Um, And it was built in 1867 strictly for the women members of the Ladies Putting Club. Yeah, there's a couple of things at play here. Actually, really just one thing, which is uh, not letting women do things. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Because there was a, a decree, basically, that women shall not take the club back past their shoulder. Um. So the in, 11th in words, commandment. Yeah, like a real golf swing, in other words, was, I guess, improper for a, for a lady to do. The Victorian era was just so stupid when it came to social constraints. I'm trying to figure out why. Does that, I don't know. Does Patriarchy, it, I would guess. Well, I just wonder why a full golf swing, would it make their their dress rate rise a little above the ankle? Or, like, I just yeah. wonder why. I think also women were expected to not overexert themselves physically, especially in public, too. So right. you could kind of construe that as overexertion. Well, and then there's this, which is from an 1890 book by uh, Scottish Baron Lord Wellwood talking about women and when they should golf and when they shouldn't golf. Mm-hmm. If they choose, I was going to do a Scottish accent, but I'm just not feeling it. Uh, if they choose to play at times when male golfers are feeding or resting, no one can object, but at other times, must we say it, they are in the way. <laughs> it was kind of snarky to add even the the must we say it. Like, do I even need to, to write this next sentence? It's so just drippingly obvious. <laughs> so, but the long, the upshot of this is that's why they created the ladies' putting club is just to sort of get rid of them. Yeah, to get them out of the way of the men. But the joke was on the men because this putting green, this first miniature golf course in the world is still around and it's still considered one of the finest. It's actually nicknamed the Himalayas because it has all these kind of mountains and hills and hillocks all built into it. Um, And they really kind of stand out from what I understand against like the Scottish seascape. Um, And it's a really revered miniature golf course, but it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a golf course in miniature, like just like you take a classic 
golf course of the variety that was born in Scotland, and you just kind of hit it with a shrink ray, and then you have a a genuine bona fide miniature golf course. And that's how the whole thing started out. Yeah. I mean, it's it's what we would call like a par three today, right? Kind of. It seems like par three courses are um, a little different. So this is like, yes, I think it, it does require more than just a putter. Right. And a par three would require more than a putter. But there seems to be a few different other kinds of golf courses aside from the miniature golf course. There's the par three, the pitch and putt, and executive courses all kind of qualify technically as miniature golf courses in different ways. Yeah, the executive course, they got the name because uh, evidently an executive could go play a quick round during lunch. Uh, a lot of par threes, you might have a like one par five and a couple of par fours. Uh, Is that right? On a par three? On an executive course. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what. That's really the only thing from what I can tell that differentiates it from a par three course. Yeah, it's 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 a golf course that's just shorter and therefore doesn't take as long. Yeah, and it's not like the hole is smaller and the ball is smaller and the clubs are smaller. <laughs> like, just, just start, get out of your fantasy land there. Uh, Instead, it's just the, the distance from the tee to the hole is shorter. There's fewer bends and, and stuff like that. So the actual experience takes less time and less energy, and you can just kind of fit it in in a shorter amount of time. And I think that's the popularity of those things generally. Although pitch and putt courses I also saw, um, they usually consist of a wedge and iron and a putter of what you need to play on those. Um, And they're all about the focus on the short game. Uh, And as a result, um, men and women, just average men and women who play golf, can kind of compete pretty evenly because it's all about the short game. It's all about finesse rather than, you know, just sheer power of driving as far as you can on, like, a a traditional golf course. Yeah, I mean, I I love golf. I just don't play anymore. Like, I grew up playing golf and was not good, but I wasn't terrible Uh uh, for as much as I played. And I still like it. I just don't, you know, have the time or the inclination anymore. But um, I like the big boy courses with the big par fives, but I also love a fun little par three. Like, uh, Florida has a lot of these beautiful par threes, including some you can play at night that are all lit up. Um, and that's always a lot of fun, too. Yeah, I, I tried to get acquainted with golf as a youngster. Um, my family had, weirdly enough, because this is not like my family at all, had a um, membership at Heather Downs Country Club. In oh, Toledo. well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I loved the pool because they had, like, you know, tons of slush puppies and the best, like, nasty hot dogs you can imagine. Um, and there was a pool and all that. I think I told you the story about swim league, the swim team where I was the worst swimmer on it. <laughs> yeah. But I also tried to golf for a couple of summers, and it just didn't didn't take it up. But I was back in Toledo like a couple of years ago, I think right before our Cleveland show, and I visited the country club. Well, I just drove by. Uh-huh. And I looked, and the pool is now just like a green field. It's been filled in. Wow. Like the little, the little um, snack shop has been torn down. I'm like... Something really bad must have happened there for them to do that to the pool, you know? Yeah, there's uh, the, and I didn't get to go here much because it was private, but Hidden Hills was a big neighborhood near my house that had a country club. That's still around, isn't it? Well, the neighborhood's there, but, you know, the neighborhood has seen its better days, and the the country club and golf course is completely just shut down and grown over. It's really, it looks, well, it is an abandoned place. That's so cool. It is kind of cool. And uh, and then I had the idea of a movie, like a old school type thing, where a bunch of old, a bunch of like middle aged men that grew up there, go back and raise some money and try and like clean the place up and get it going again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to hilarity. And there has to be like a greedy developer that they're battling, right? Oh yeah. So is that the neighborhood that we got kicked out of when we tried to go shoot like without a license once around that area? Remember the security guard came up was like, "Stop what you're doing." I don't remember that. Yeah, it happened one day. Was it on the we TV show some, or a short? Some gorilla. No, it was like when we were shooting shorts, I think. Yeah, I don't remember that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was the one. Should we take a break already? Sure. <laughs> okay. All right, we'll get back and we'll talk about where mini golf went from here right after this. Yes, 
Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 251292887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. All right, so we're back. Nothing we've talked about right now constitutes miniature golf in the mind of anybody who hears the words miniature golf, right? True. Like what what comes to mind are things like putt-putt or goofy golf or windmills or clowns or Happy Gilmore or something like that, right? Yeah. So um, that all started, actually that didn't quite start yet. I was really leading up to that. And then I realized we had to keep going with regular miniature golf <laughs> one more time because it has to spread to America. And it did. And we can actually trace that too. Um to the house of a guy named James Barber, who is an immigrant from England who was familiar with the course, the Ladies' Putting Club at St. Andrews. Um, And he was rich enough that he said, you know, I want a miniature golf course built on my estate um, at Pinehurst, North Carolina. And he did. He had like an 18-hole miniature course built right there in his his formal gardens. And it's just absolutely beautiful. It is nice. And uh, this was the first one in the United States. And as it's called Thistledew, uh, T-H-I-S-T-L-E-D-H-U. And mm-hmm. supposedly, as legend goes, he when he first saw it, he said, this'll do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess he was uh, uh, he was not blown away, maybe. I don't know. Sounds a little I, I'm underwhelmed. I'm hoping he wasn't one of those spoiled brat, <laughs> you know, robber barons and instead was like, this'll do. This'll do quite nicely. Right. And they just left <laughs> off the, the second part, you know? Yeah, but it's called Thistledew, and uh, they started hosting competitions a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the first time miniature golf was ever used, like those words were ever used, to describe mm-hmm. the Pinehurst Outlook. Uh, was that yeah. the newspaper, I guess? Yeah, it's their one claim to fame. <laughs> oh. You know it's true, though. That's probably true. But they, they were the in that in a uh, account of the uh, competition. They coined the term miniature golf. Up to that point, a lot of people had called it Lilliputian golf. Sure. After the uh, the little people in Gulliver Gulliver's Travels. Yeah. And that actually that name actually stuck for quite a while. Um, so we've got James Barber, who hosted or, or built the first miniature golf course in America. But still, this thing is like directly connected to the Ladies Putting Club of St. Andrews. It's a golf course in miniature. We still haven't quite reached what we would consider miniature golf. And that wouldn't happen until 1926, which turned out to be a really big year for miniature golf in America. It was like there was something in the air and a few different people kind of tapped into it around the same time. And it suddenly just took off like a rocket. Yeah, two of the guys were uh, some entrepreneurs named Drake Del- uh, Delanoy, I guess. Great and name. John Ledbetter, another good name. <clears throat> and it's okay. He sounds like he'll he'll shoot you. Who Ledbetter? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Uh, they did a pretty cool thing, which is they opened up a course 
on top of a rooftop in the financial district in New York. And that kicked off a trend. There were, I think, uh, about 100 of those on top of roofs. I guess it was before the big uh, rooftop bar hotel scene. They had golf courses up there. Yeah, miniature golf courses. Again, though, those were like miniature golf courses. So, that I mean, that was a big deal. In New York, just 100 rooftop golf, miniature golf courses Fun. alone in the 20s. That's that's a tremendous amount. Um, and I don't think there's a single one left, actually. Um, there should be. Th- there's, there's, so that kind of makes the whole, you know, there's one on, on top of Pont City Market where the House Stuff Works office is. Um, is there that, golf up there? There's a miniature golf course up there, and okay. it makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, it's kind of like a whole mini Coney Island up there. Yeah, I mean, I think I've only been up there when we had work events, and the only thing I did was the slide. Uh, I didn't know there was a slide. Yeah, there's like a, you know, you sit in a potato sack and go down yeah, this yeah, big yeah. slide. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I did that. That was fun. Yeah, there's a there's a miniature golf course up there. We'll have to play sometime when the whole pandemic passes. <laughs> totally. Uh, and then later that same year, you said it was kind of a boom year for mini golf. Uh, Lookout Mountain, Tennessee in Chattanooga, which mm-hmm. is a place where I think everybody should go to see Ruby Falls and Rock City. Oh, yes. It is a tourist trap, but it's actually kind of neat. I mean, the greatest of the great tourist traps. And it still holds up, too. Yeah. Get a uh, a pecan log. Oh my god, <laughs> those are so good. They are so good. They're so, that's what that also supports my theory that candy was perfected in the 19th century. <laughs> I'd never heard. Remember of that nougat, honeycomb, sure, pecan logs. <laughs> was that a, I didn't know pecan logs were from way back then, but I believe it. Yeah, for sure, they're definitely old timey. So these people, uh, Garnett and Frida Carter. They mm-hmm. built a resort called Fairyland Club, and it was part of that whole sort of interconnected scene there with Rock City and Ruby Falls, and they built a miniature golf course, and they said, you know what, uh, if you like golf, uh, maybe you should try mini golf because it doesn't take very long. It'll kind of scratch that itch if you're not able to play a real round, and mm-hmm. that's sort of how they marketed it at first, and they... Uh, they were the first people, I think, to start adding the obstacles, right? They did, yeah. And um, they used, as they were building, like, the inn and the resort complex, they used some of the construction materials like drain pipes and, you know, barrels and things like that and used built them as hazards. And then because they had this whole, like, fairy tale theme going up there, they also built Rock City. They were the ones who built Rock City, and that has, like, a cool little weird, weird, but also very neat fairy tale theme yeah. kind of <laughs> hidden throughout. Um, they they added that to their miniature golf course. So they, they had these stationary obstacles and hazards that they added, and then they also added this statuary of cute little, you know, Mother Goose type stuff. And they actually called the whole thing Tom Thumb Golf. Tom Thumb, from what I understand, is the earliest recorded English fairy tale character from back in 1621. And he was a little tiny guy the mm-hmm. size of his father's thumb, which is where he got his name. So it was a pretty appropriate name. They they must have really, like, been pretty pleased with themselves when they decided to call it Tom Thumb Golf because it really it checked all the boxes. Yeah, and we should mention, too, we keep saying Rock City. And if you're not from the southeast, you might think it's just some, like, redneck area with a bunch of rocks. It's actually a very sweet natural wonder. It's it's caves mm-hmm. that you walk through. Caves, it's huge boulders being held up by much, much smaller boulders. Yeah, that it's really been neat. That way for probably tens of thousands of years that you walk under. There's like, yeah, there, there's little cave areas that you kind of duck into and they have little fairy tale scenes with fluorescent day or fluorescent. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess kind of day glow. Yeah, it's like glow in the dark. Uh, Weird, like, gnomes in, in fairy tale scenes. And like, that's the weird part. It's like if Carlsbad Caverns had, you know, some corny uh, fairy theme. Mm-hmm. And then Ruby Falls is really neat, too. Yeah. It's a very cool, like, natural attraction that they've done a good job of, like— Underground you know, waterfall. —making it easy to, to make your way to. But, yeah, it's a, it, the whole thing is definitely worth going to. And then, of course, they have this the very famous, like, Sea Rock City— uh, barn sides that everybody's heard right. of, and, and that houses. was uh, that was Garnet Carter who painted one man or paid one man 
to go around and offer to to give a fresh coat of paint to barns all throughout the southeast. That's great. If, in exchange for letting them paint Sea Rock City on the side. Yeah, it's um, if you've ever driven around the North Carolina, South Carolina area uh, and south of the border, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. South of the Mason-Dixon line? No, south of the border is the name of this uh, sort of highway tourist trap. That's oh, like, no, uh, I haven't heard of that. Yeah, it's 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 the same deal. I think it's, I want to say it's North Carolina, but it's basically like a glorified rest stop with that uh, has a Mexican theme. Uh-huh. Where you can go, like, I don't know, see a mariachi band and eat good food and <laughs> buy cheap tchotchkes. <laughs> the only mariachi band in all of North Carolina. <laughs> but what made me think about it, it might be, was that uh, they had the same thing for, like, hundreds of miles in any direction for south of the border and Rock City. They're very famous for these billboards that tell you, like, oh, it's coming. You're getting closer. You're getting closer. Huh. I, that's really strange that I've never heard of that, then. Yeah, south of the border. Check it out. Must not have been paying attention. So, so the Carters built like this Tom Thumb golf course, and again, originally they just did this as kind of an amenity at their Fairyland Inn and Fairyland um, Club. Uh, but it was such a smash hit, and Garnet Carter was such a, a like born businessman that um, they 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 were like, I think there might be something to this. And they saw either they saw it out or he sought them out. I'm not quite sure how it happened. But there was another guy who really factors bigly into this whole story. <laughs> uh, but he's very frequently overlooked. And his name is Thomas McCulloch Fairburn. McCullough Fairburn. Yeah. Um, and he invented a really cheap and easy technique for creating artificial putting greens that could be used for miniature golf courses. Yeah, it was uh, crushed cotton seed hulls, uh, oil, Mm -hmm. you would dye it green, and they would come in these big rolls, and you just roll it over this foundation of sand, and boom, you've got an easy way basically to sort of franchise these things with these prefab kits that they they had. Mm -hmm. And people loved it um, because it was... You know, when it was, they called it midget golf for a little while. Not a term we mm-hmm. would use today, but it's what they called it in the 1920s. Right. And this factors in to a lot of the stuff we've been talking about with the 1920s lately. Just these weird fads that would pop up. And Tom Thumb Golf was one of them. It was. Um, and part of the reason that it got out from Lookout Mountain is because the Carters and um, Fairburn kind of joined forces and used his technique for making these greens very cheaply and used their kind of like touch of whimsy, packaged it together and started selling it, prepackaged sets or prefabricated sets um, that could be franchised out to anybody who wanted to start their own Tom Thumb golf course. And so they spread really, really quickly. And like you were saying, like the 20s, they were just looking for whatever craze could come along, crossword puzzles, dance marathons, flagpole sitting. Well, apparently... Miniature golf was the king of them all as far as the 20s crazes went. Yeah, this is a pretty startling statistic. Uh, In August of 1930, the Commerce Department said that there were, and apparently this could be low by even as much as half, Mm -hmm. 25,000 mini golf courses in the U.S., half of which were built in that previous six or eight months of the year. (laughs) Yeah, that's a boom right there. Can you imagine like an eight months like twelve to 15,000 mini golf courses being built in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I can just imagine Garnet and Frida Carter just rolling around on a bed of money in their suite at the Ferry Land Inn. Yeah, and I mean, in a legit, like, job-boosting market. Yeah, no, well, that's a, that's another thing too, right? I mean, like, there was, um, uh, a, like, flagpole sitting didn't make the transition into the Depression, and dance marathons did, but they got kind of grim, um, apparently miniature golf, and I've seen both, but f- but miniature golf seems to have made the transition from 20s craze to, you know, kind of national pastime mm-hmm. that, that made sense in the Depression because you could take your whole family out to play miniature golf for pretty cheap. Um, so that, like that was a nickel a big, or something. That, that was a big attraction. Um, and then also, if you were like a golf junkie, but all of a sudden you didn't have the money to afford greens fees any longer, at the very least you could go play some miniature golf somewhere. So it kind of scratched that itch to a certain um, a certain degree. So there was like a lot of popularity that even after the craze kind of crested and waned a little bit, um, it still carried on 
pretty pretty thoroughly through the 1930s. And as a matter of fact, Chuck, some for some people were like at Tom Thumb Golf, the official franchise Tom Thumb Golf. It's a little rich for my blood. What else you got for me? Yeah, like why can't we just do this? Well, yeah, exactly. Local entrepreneurs were like, I got exactly the thing, buddy. You want to play half-priced half miniature golf? Yeah. Come on in. <laughs> like, I've got a bunch of PVC pipe laying around. Yeah. Or, yeah. So, just basically whatever found objects you could find, you, you, could, you could come across what were called rinky-dink miniature golf courses that were basically knockoff Tom Thumb courses that used whatever found objects the, the person who built it had lying around. Yeah, New York had about 150 of them. Uh, Washington, D.C. had 30. Uh, one of those is still around, the East Potomac Park course. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the, the whole family could get involved. And I think one of the the keys then and now to mini golf being popular and then putt-putt, which we'll see here in a minute, is mm-hmm. that you don't even have to like golf at all. You can hate golf and still go do putt-putt and probably have a, a good time. Yeah, as long as you don't take it too seriously. Don't take it too seriously. No, Just have please don't. <laughs> Just relax. Don't be that guy. That's what it's for. Um, you want to take a break and then talk putt-putt? Yes. Okay, let's do that, everybody. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text stuff to 251292887 and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Are we there? Who, me? Are we there? Are we at Putt-Putt? Oh, I thought you said, are you there? I'm like, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> we are there, Chuck, because um, let me set the set the table here. You ready? Yes, I'm hungry. Uh America got a little burned out on miniature golf, especially the Tom Thumb and Rinky Dink varieties. Um, and so a lot of it died out, but some remained, some hopped along. Some are still around today, actually. And by the 1950s, um, there was a guy who was playing at one of these courses in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which, remember, is the home of miniature golf in the United States, North Carolina is. Mm-hmm. And um, he happened to have just gotten a prescription from his doctor saying, you're about to have a nervous breakdown. I prescribe you a month's rest from work. And this guy, Don Clayton, said, can do. And he started playing miniature golf. But he wasn't quite satisfied with it. Yeah, I imagine if you were um, on the verge of a nervous breakdown, then Tom Thumb Golf is a nice salve for that kind of experience kind of experience sure if if you're charmed by all the whimsical stuff and you don't take it too seriously right from what (laughs) i understand though don clayton was like this whimsy sucks we need something better than this and i think i'm just the person to build it yeah so he had the idea to to basically make miniature golf but without all the garbage 
um, no clown's mouths, no windmills, and have a little like have have a little skill involved. Like you can go out there, and if you're like a good putter, you can actually com- compete and have a good time, and it's still for fun. But it's just not a silly kids game anymore. Yeah, like anybody who's been to an actual putt putt course can tell you that it's. I mean, there's a lot of obstacles, and it's interesting and fun, and there's some neat stuff. But it does. It just does not have all of like the the moving bells and whistles that you're going to see on like other kinds of miniature golf, like goofy golf. No, nah, like um, the, the obstacles are usually just like some blocks in the way and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. That you have or to hit like around or bank it elevated, around. Elevated rhombuses or things like that, or like a labyrinth, you know, built into it. Um, it's not like a, a clown's mouth or anything like that, which is kind of like the go-to description for goofy golf, isn't it really? Yeah, and I think like the, the craziest thing you'll see on a putt-putt course is where you, those that are like two levels, and you can hit it into three different holes at the top, mm-hmm. and you're like, you kind of take a little bit of a gamble as to where it's going to come out on the bottom. Uh, sure. It'll either come out close to the hole, so you can get that par two, and I think yeah. they're all par twos on a real yeah. putt-putt course. Right. Or it'll spit you out way far away, but you still have a chance to hit that long putt for the for the two. Sure. There's always a chance for you, a second chance at putt-putt. <laughs> I think that was the motto. So, um, yeah, but the, so this was Don Clayton's vision. He was like, I, I want to make this a little less goofy. I want to make it a little more interesting and, and skillful. Less goofy, more um, golfy. Yeah, yeah, Chuck. Man, he just sat up from his grave going, I wish I'd thought of that. Is he dead? But, yeah, he died in 1996. Yeah, okay. But he had a good run. I mean, this is 1954 when sure. he was a 28-year-old man that he decided to try this. So uh, he went to his dad and said, hey, I've got this I've got this idea. Rather than basically, as a New York Times obituary put it, um, rather than basic, basically making a, a human-sized pinball machine for golf, we're going to make this a little more interesting. How about we cobble together 5200 bucks and we're going to build our own little miniature golf course? And he did in like a, a shaded little um, lot. And with that $5,200, they opened for business. And within 29 days, he and his father had made 100% of their investment back. And Don Clayton said, I think there might be something to this whole thing. Yeah, so he uh, he was initially going to call it. He went to the bank to open a business account, and he had to fill out the paperwork, and he was going to call it the Shady Vale Golf Course. But Yeah, this is hilarious. As the story goes, he didn't know how to spell Vale, I guess, if it was V-A-I-L or V-A-L-E. Mm-hmm. So he just said, uh, putt-putt, <laughs> and wrote down putt-putt. Yeah. It wasn't something he brainstormed. Apparently, it was just sort of on a whim. Yeah. And it's a name that really, really stuck. It's kind of yeah, brilliant no, it in its simplicity, I think. Divine inspiration, it almost feels like, um, that it just kind of happened on a whim. That's just absolutely great. But um, he started to kind of build the whole thing into, like, this enormous industry pretty quickly because he was right. You know, there's... I did the math. If they made their $5,200 back in 29 days, that means that over that month, they had 20,800 paying customers. Okay, well, it was a quarter a game? 25 cents a game, yeah. Man, that's a lot of people. And so when they really got together and, and started putt-putt, like they, they, he was right. He was on to something, and it started to take off pretty quickly. And apparently at its peak, um, when you and I were going to putt-putt, Yes. Uh, they were they they had something like 256 courses throughout the world um mostly in the US and Canada but also in Australia and South Africa and New Zealand um and it was uh it was definitely a thing like you said all of the holes were par twos right yeah and this was just to be clear 256 doesn't sound like a lot compared to the 50,000 that uh, they had in the 1930s, but mm-hmm. this was his his own putt putt golf and games franchise. Right, there was plenty of more putt putt going on in the United States than that. Right, right, you know right. I mean? Yeah, like knockoff putt putt. Right. Yeah, like the one at Stone Mountain Park wasn't a putt putt golf and games. It was just putt putt, but it was yeah. it was great. It's called tap tap. <laughs> they also had trail skate across from the putt putt, which was a roller skating trail through the woods. What? Yeah, it was like this two-mile 
paved, you know, just basically like a big paved sidewalk through the woods, and they rented roller skates, and you would just skate through the woods. It was really cool. Man, that's awesome. Country folk just have some of the best (laughs) ideas for businesses, you know what I mean? I didn't think of us as country folk, but I guess it kind of was. Roller skating through the woods (laughs) is country. (laughs) I guess it is. That's like Dolly Parton level country. <laughs> so yeah, they're all part twos, um, and it is it is tough. It's challenging. Apparently, in the sixty five year history of putt putt, there have only been mm-hmm. three perfect games where you walk away with a score of eighteen, which is that's that's really tough to do. I mean, like of the millions and millions of games that of putt putt that people have played, only three people have ever ever gotten a perfect game, which kind of shows you how, like, deceptively hard yeah. a putt-putt course is, you know? Like, each one of those each one of those courses is made of, um, I think they have something like 108 uh, trademarked holes. Right. Or, like, uh, lanes, I think, is what they're called in miniature golf. Um, so, where you can just kind of take them and, and reconfigure them into different, different configurations. But they have 108 total, and I guess each one of them is... It, it, very, very difficult. I don't ever remember getting a perfect game or even imagining that I was going to get a perfect game. No, I mean, you get a two or three holes in one, and that's a that's a good day. For sure. So 18, there's actually a short, I think, seven-and-a-half-minute Grantland documentary on the most recent <laughs> nice. perfect putt-putt game <laughs> by a guy named Rick Baird, who had his perfect game in 2011. Can you imagine the tension I- on hole 18? They capture it really well in this in this documentary. It's yeah. really well done. They've got like it, like a cartoon version of him putting, and he's got like cartoon sweat just running down <laughs> his face. Oh man, really I would be great! So nervous. But yeah, it was very nervous, and he did it. And he's actually a, a miniature golf pro um, in his spare time, which we'll talk about later. But there's so he's from Charlotte. Um, Don uh, Clayton was from Fayetteville. And then um, Joseph Barber was from Pinehurst. So it seems pretty clear that North Carolina is the ancestral home of miniature golf, or at least the spiritual home of miniature golf in the world, frankly. I'm just going to say it in the world. (laughs) Yeah, and if you're looking for the creators of the uh, kind of mechanized courses, uh, you can go to 1955 in Scranton, PA, with Ralph and Al Loma, um, mm-hmm. Previous to this, you know, you had the putt-putt, which just had the sort of regular obstacles. You had the Tom Thumb, which had kind of more outrageous whimsy, but still things weren't moving. And th- these are the guys that brought in these rotating windmill blades or ramps that move back and forth. And they really kind of kicked that to the next level. And uh, they, you know, they went into business big time. They started mass producing these things, like the actual components and sold a ton of them all over the world. Yeah, I think like 5,000 courses. Yeah. Which is pretty impressive. They're the ones who came up with what we think of now as like miniature golf and goofy golf with the moving stuff. Not a fan. The, the clown mouth. Don't forget the clown mouth that opens and closes. Or, yeah, like you say, a windmill. Um, so it's kind of interesting that Don Clayton brought miniature golf back to its roots of being a lot more like regular golf. And then very shortly after that, branched off the Lomas, who brought it back to their, that Tom Thumb roots. So that whole thing, the evolution of miniature golf happened twice in just the same way. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And it also came back full circle in the 90s with a return to sort of that original miniature golf Mm -hmm. because real golfers, people like Jack Nicholas, started to get involved uh, I'm sure there were dollar signs, you know, in his eyes. <laughs> sure. But he also probably loved it. I don't want to be cynical, but I'm sure he made some money. <laughs> uh, but they have competitions, you know. There are actual um, prize purses. There is a U.S. Pro Mini Golf Association. They have their own little U.S. Open. I don't think they call it the little U.S. Open. Uh, <laughs> they should, though. <laughs> they totally should. There's the World Mini Golf Sports Federation in Germany. Uh-huh. And they sort of are the the body that standardizes the obstacles and stuff like that on, yeah. I guess, what you can have and what you can't have. Yeah. Which is kind of funny when you think about it. It is, but it's a pretty interesting list. You're like, oh, that'd be tough. Oh, that's hard. The sloped circle with a V obstacle? Yeah. That's just plain difficult. Um, and I, I think they should call it the teeny-weeny U.S. Open. 
<laughs> Welcome back to the Teeny Weeny US Open. <laughs> I was looking at the um, the uh, U.S. Pro Mini Golf Association's website, and um, there was a Tennessee State Open. And man, the picture that they have of that course—it looks serious, dude. Yeah. So, like, if you if you go to putt putt and you always were like, "I love this. This is so challenging. I can score like a sixteen some or a, well, I guess not a sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't play the last two holes when I'm on a streak. Um, you know, like a, a twenty or a twenty-two or something like that. Whoa. You might actually have fun being a miniature golf pro, and there are some serious courses out there for you to play that are a couple of notches above your average putt-putt course. I'd like to play one of those. Would you? I don't know if I would have fun. I'd, I'd make a run. My club. <laughs> Should we talk about some of these uh, famous courses? Yeah. So um, from what I can tell, the United States is the home of miniature golf. It's the capital of, of miniature is. golf. I don't believe there's any country. Like I was looking, I was like, maybe Thailand is like even more into it than the United States. I don't think so. I think the United States is the place that has the most miniature golf courses and has probably the most paying customers for miniature golf courses. I could Um, see Japan. I could too, but I didn't see anything like that. Yeah, I didn't see anything like it. So the United States is the home of miniature golf and the world capital of miniature golf then is Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Which yes. is ironic that it's not North Carolina, but it's not everybody. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Myrtle Beach is sort of one of those classic old-school beach towns that has all of the, the go-karts and the bumper boats and the mini-golf. And mm-hmm. they have one called Molten Mountain uh, that's pretty cool. Like, you should go check out pictures of some of these places. They're a lot of fun. Uh, that, yeah. that has a volcano, a working volcano that erupts every half hour. And it's sort of an inside and an out thing. Like, I think it's both – Indoors and outdoors, right? It is, yeah. It's a pretty, it's a pretty great one. And the the whole volcano thing—they're not the only one. That's how nutso Myrtle Beach is. Yeah, There's sure. another one called Hawaiian Rumble that also has a functioning volcano too. And in fact, on Highway 17, there's a 30 mile stretch of it that goes through Myrtle Beach, where there's 50. More than 50 <laughs> miniature golf courses in a 30-mile stretch yeah. through Myrtle Beach. And I'm sure a lot of opinions on which ones are good and which <laughs> right. ones stink. Yeah. Um, there's one I want to go to in Palatine, Illinois. I think I saw <laughs> a couple of these from Travel and Leisure, maybe. Um, this one's called Algram Acres, A-L-G-H-R-I-M, Acres. It's in Palatine, Illinois, Illinois. And it's a funeral home, like for real, in real life. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, they... They take care of dead bodies, yeah. and you can also play nine holes on their death-themed course in the basement. In the basement. First of all, the basement of a funeral home is just creepy on its own. Yeah. But a death-themed miniature golf course in a funeral home that actually functions, that's that's just downright interesting. Yeah, there's this one in Las Vegas, too, the Kiss-themed one, which— I checked out on YouTube. I would I would play this even though it goes against two things for me, which is not into indoor miniature golf. I really mm-hmm. would like to be outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Kiss sucks. <laughs> what? I thought you were a Kiss fan. No. Oh, man, I thought you were a Kiss fan. No, not a Kiss fan. Never. I mean, you know, I get it. And I think it's kind of fun and funny. Sure. But I never but, thought Kiss was like played good rock huh. and roll songs, really. That's very surprising. I know KISS fans are going to be so mad at me for saying their music is not good, but, I mean, there's a reason they they dressed up and spit blood and stuff. <laughs> so there's a—but it's still, it'd be worth playing. I, I agree. No, it looked there's, fun. Th- the one that I would actually travel to go play um, is called Parking. It's in uh, Lincolnshire, Illinois. So I'd probably go there and then I'd dip down or dip up, I'm not sure, to Palatine to play at Algram Acres. Okay. But Parking is like exactly what— it is, it's the pinnacle of a miniature golf course, if you ask me. It's got it all. It's difficult, and it has all of the amazing obstacles and weird traps and um, functioning problems to figure out <laughs> that, that a miniature golf course should have. It looked pretty cool. I mean, I'm a putt-putt guy, but I was checking out pictures and stuff. I would, I would, go, I would go to parking with you for sure. Okay. We'll go. It's going to be a summer trip in 2022 or three. Fantastic. <laughs> um, and then if you want to play, so I think, Chuck, this one would be up your alley. It's called Golf Gardens in Cat- on Catalina Island in-, in SoCal. Yeah, right up my alley. 
This one is like considered the hardest miniature golf course in the United States. Um, not just because it uh, it's difficultly laid out, but also because it's been played so much that it's got all sorts of weird notches and stuff that's not supposed to be there yeah. in the playing surface. <laughs> so that makes it all the more difficult, which is kind of neat. I love that. And then if you want to go retro, I think that one's been around a while. Um, you can go down to Florida and they have a historic mini golf trail that takes you from a miniature golf course to miniature golf course, all of which have been around for at least 50 years. Amazing. Uh, and if you like weird old stuff that's not in use anymore, look up abandoned miniature golf courses. That's a fun thing to do. And since I said it's a fun thing to do, everybody, that means it's time for listener mail. All right, I'm going to call this dad mail. Got this very sweet email. I love it when the family's listening, you know? Mm-hmm, Sure. Especially when they're not, I mean, I like families with young kids that listen, but I also like it when the it's adults and then older parents that are listening. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hey guys, hope you're hanging in there. These are such tricky times. I know you're, I'm not the only listener that turns to your show for a distraction or a soundtrack to washing dishes or background noise while trying to run or just something that feels normal during these abnormal times. A couple of years ago, my now husband and I took a road trip with my parents to stay with my now in-laws. As we pulled out of the driveway, we put on Stuff You Should Know and spent the entire journey sharing your catalog with them, and they were immediately hooked. My parents continue to love your podcast, but every time my dad refers to it, he mixes up the name. (laughs) I love this stuff. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So far, he's called you Guys You Should Know. Sure. Stuff You Ought to Know. Yeah. Things You Need to Know. And Stuff Guys. (laughs) Stuff Guys is, that's a good nickname. Uh, lately, he's just been referring to you as the Guys Podcast, which is close yeah. enough for me. Eventually, we're just going to get to the. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for all the amazing work and the thoughtful approach you have to podcasting. So grateful to have multiple episodes to listen to every week. And that is from Maribeth. And she says, P.S. I should add that the episode on fractals is now infamously nap inducing in my family. <laughs> but I blame the long stretch of highway on that. Thank you. That was very kind of you. Yeah, nice save. Really pulled it out at the end there. Um, who is that, Maribeth? Yep. Uh, well, if you want to be like Maribeth and get in touch with us, um, we would appreciate that. Right now, you can send it to us via email. That's the best way to reach us at stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. Enjoy the smooth, clean taste of still rainwater or the cold, pressured bubbles of sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And for a coupon, text STUFF to 251-292-8887 and receive $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's Rainwater. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month.